Well, Father, we are grateful that we can be here today and sit under your word and hear the message that you have for us. I pray that you will give an open heart to hear what John the Baptist teaches to uh, the crowds of Israel. I pray that you will disarm us from defensiveness. Holy Spirit, will you give us a softness and a tenderness to make the changes that need to take place. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Alan Chambers was the president of Exodus International. Uh, it was a ministry designed to help people limit their wish, to help people who wish to limit their homosexual desires. In 2011, he was named by World Magazine as the Daniel of the Year. He was listed by Charisma Magazine as one of the rising influencers in Christianity. And in 2012, he made an announcement that pretty much shocked everyone. He denounced the use of reparative therapy. That is a special form of therapy I do not agree with, but it was used by Exodus International to help people limit their same-sex desires. And what he said was, it just didn't work. And then he went on to make some other comments that rightly disturbed much of evangelical Christianity. In an interview with The Atlantic, he had the following exchange. The Atlantic questions, does that mean a person living a gay lifestyle won't go to hell as long as he or she accepts Jesus Christ as personal savior? Right, did he get that question? Can a person living an active homosexual lifestyle go to heaven as long as they accept Jesus Christ. And this is what he said. My personal belief is that everyone has an opportunity to know Christ and that while behavior matters, those things don't interrupt someone's relationship with Christ. So his answer is yes. But at the same time, he says that behavior matters, that it's still wrong, that's not God's best, that's not God's design. And so he clarified his position in Christianity Today, and this is what he wrote. For anyone to point to one group of people with a certain set of proclivities and condemn them for those things while exonerating or ignoring another is hypocritical and inconsistent. Can a believer persist in willful pride and still inherit the kingdom of God? Can a believer persist in willful alcoholism and still inherit the kingdom of God? Can a believer persist in willful gluttony and still inherit the kingdom of God? Can a believer persist in willful heterosexual pornography and still inherit the kingdom of God? You know where he's going with this. Can a believer persist in willful acts of homosexual nature and still inherit the kingdom of God? And his answer is yes. So what's going on here? Well, Alan Chambers is advocating something called non-lordship salvation or free grace theology. It is the belief that if at one point in your life you have made a sincere commitment to follow Jesus Christ, 
Perhaps it was at a church camp or a college retreat, at a marriage conference. Perhaps you went to a Billy Graham crusade. But at that moment, you made a sincere decision to follow Jesus Christ. Then you are saved no matter how you live the rest of your life. Once saved, always saved. Now, it is true you might miss out on some eternal reward because you're not living an obedient life as a disciple. But there's an understanding that you can make Christ Savior and not make Him Lord. You can make him Savior and not make him Lord. Therefore, you can make a sincere commitment to become a Christian, live an an active homosexual lifestyle, and still have assurance that you'll go to heaven when you die. And, And this is the belief of many Christians for a variety of reasons. It's the belief of some Christian parents who raise their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, who know that their kids made a sincere commitment to follow Christ, and then they went off the rails in college, and now they live a Christ-free existence. But they think to themselves, I know he's saved, he's just not walking with the Lord. This is the belief of someone who had a come-to-Jesus moment, and even though they're on their fifth marriage and currently living with their girlfriend, even though they have various addictions in their life, even though they haven't stepped foot in a church in 30 years, even though there are no visible fruits of their life, they say, I came to Jesus that one time, I know I'm going to heaven when I die. Once saved, always saved. Right? As long as you believe in Jesus as your Savior, you're okay. Repentance is great. Don't want to discourage it. But repentance is optional. Repentance is optional. Well, in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist confronts a religion where people thought that repentance was optional. And he makes it very clear that that is not the case when the Messiah comes. As we'll see, repentance is mandatory. If you haven't turned with me, go to Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 7. We'll read 7 through 18. He, John the Baptist, said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. How's that for a greeting, right? Welcome, Flint Hills Bible Church, you brood of vipers. (laughs) Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. 
As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many exhortations he preached the good news to the people. Now John makes it very clear that the path to repentance runs through, or the path to the Messiah, I'm sorry, runs through repentance. If you want to come to the Messiah, if you want to be part of his kingdom, it is mandatory that you repent. Now, we know in retrospect that the arrival of the Messiah was a two-stage ministry, right? For us to inherit the kingdom of heaven, to be forgiven and with the Lord forever, he had to come die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that he can conquer sin and death. But we also know that the arrival of the Messiah, something that John is anticipating here, will occur in the future where the, the clouds will roll back like a scroll. Jesus Christ will descend from heaven, have his feet planted on the Mount of Olives, and he will reign. And when he reigns, all of his enemies will be consigned to the lake of fire. And so it's worth asking the question, are you an enemy of God? What? There is no possible way I would be an enemy. You know, one of, a, one of the fascinating verses that's always kind of gripped me is Isaiah 42, 8. Where God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. You see, God is the Lord. He is to be the rightful object of all glory and praise. And how often do you look around society and see people seeking to get glory for themselves? Right? Just check out Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I mean, everyone is trying to make a name for themselves. There's this inherent boastfulness of mankind where we all believe that we are to be the center of all good and glory. And yeah, we, we want to you know, be saved. Nobody wants to go to hell. There, there's a willingness that we want to be saved from the wrath to come, but we don't want to give our glory to another we don't want to live in a surrendered posture. You see, when Jesus comes back, he will wipe away all his enemies. But he does offer terms of, of surrender. And do you know what those terms of surrender are? Unconditional. Those who unconditionally surrender to him, who make him their Lord, they will reign with him. They will benefit from his kingdom. And so the question is, how do you surrender? And the answer is repentance. It is to turn from your sin, to turn from your desire to rule and reign over your own life, and to surrender your will 
to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And as John the Baptist prepares all of Israel for this eventual arrival, we're being prepared as well, that to be ready for the Lord's return, you need to repent. There is no make Christ Savior now and Lord later. There is one call, and that is to repent, to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. Now, to help you see this, we're going to go through three elements of mandatory repentance. Number one, you turn from presumption. Number two, you turn to righteousness. And number three, you turn to Christ. So we'll look at the first point. Turn from presumptuous. Presumption. Now, to be presumptuous is to assume something that's not true. Right? Somebody who's presumptuous makes claims that they're not entitled to. You have Bob, who's your typical emporian. He's a good old boy, lived here for a long time, one of the legacy families. Uh, he works hard at his job. He's been faithful to his wife. He attends one of the churches on Commercial Street. And if you were to ask him, are you going to heaven when you die, he would say, of course. If you ask him why he would go to heaven, you'd say, because I'm a good person. As demonstrated by the fact that I've never cheated on my wife, I conduct my business in a very honest manner, uh, I give to charity, I'm involved in all the community events. And then he might look at his classmate, Fred. Fred is not a good person. Fred beats his wife. Fred went to jail for distributing meth. He is a, a foul, spiteful person, and so Bob thinks, compared to Fred, I think I'm going to be okay because I'm a good person. And then Bob gets cancer. He is shaken, but he's not frightened because he is expecting to go to heaven when he dies. Now, what do you say to somebody like Bob? How do you shake him out of this presumptuous stupor? Well, John gives us some guidance. You brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, what's interesting is John the Baptist, he's in the, he's in the desert. He's at the, basically the mouth of the Dead Sea. Everyone is hearing about this prophet. They're coming from all around. We learn from the parallel account in Matthew that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were coming. And, and when he calls them a brood of vipers, you could see why. But he says this to the entire crowd. You brood of vipers. And they're like, whoa. Yeah, I'm talking to you. You're a brood of viper. You are part of the brood of vipers. And being called a snake has never been a compliment, by the way. It's transcultural. You can go to every nation, call somebody a snake, and they'll want to slap you. Right? So just calling them a snake, you know, in this case, a viper is a poisonous snake, probably an adder, uh, that, that would be an insult enough. But here's a question, okay? I want kids' participation here. Who is the most famous snake in the Bible? The most famous snake in the Bible. Do you guys know the most famous snake in the Bible? In Satan, that's right. Right from Genesis chapter 3, the serpent of old. The most famous snake in the Bible. He's saying, you are a brood. You are of his brood. I mean, Jesus did that before. 
He told the, the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Matthew 8, 44. Right? He's essentially calling all of these people coming to him, you are children of the devil. You're children of the devil. And who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The imagery is there's a brush fire and all these snakes are kind of scurrying away from the flames. It's like you get some semblance that the wrath of God is coming and they come like snakes fleeing from the fire and you're coming to me. You think that if I were to just baptize you and dunk you in this water, you're going to avoid the wrath to come. I mean, how many... People who are religious think that if I drink some juice and eat a cracker, I am going to avoid the wrath to come. If I get my body wet by taking a plunging bath, I will flee from the wrath to come. If I just attend church and sing these songs, I'm going to flee from the wrath to come. And what John the Baptist is saying to all these religious people, it says, I'm sorry, these religious acts, even this baptism means nothing unless, verse 8, you bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't come to me to be baptized if you're not willing to repent. Don't think you could be plunged into this water and be absolved from your sins and delivered from the wrath to come. You are a brood of vipers. Now, internally, a Jew might push back. He says, listen, I am not a son of Satan, okay? I'm a son of Abraham, the great father of faith. I'm part of God's chosen people. And John, anticipating this, says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Abraham was one of the most important Old Testament figures. God selected him and told him, I'm going to make you and your descendants a great nation, and all the nations will be blessed through you. And so, if you were a child of Abraham and you carried the mark of the covenant, which was circumcision, you would understand that God's gifts and callings are irrevocable, that God's favor to Abraham will be extended to you because he can't break his promise to Abraham. And John says, you know what? God doesn't need you to accomplish his purposes. He can just turn these stones right here by the river into children of Abraham. He can use these stones to bless all the nations. Don't be presumptuous. Don't think because of your spiritual heritage that you will be able to successfully flee from the wrath to come. I spent a summer in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina on a missions trip. They call it the Redneck Riviera and it's aptly named. Anyway, there were all these t-shirt shops. You know, it was kind of like your... Uh, kind of the beach store, and they're all up and down the, the shoreline. And, and when I was there, uh, one of the best-selling and most popular items was a very obscene T-shirt. They were everywhere. It was disgusting. And I remember going into one of these stores because I needed to buy some sunblock, and I struck up a conversation with the owner, and I managed to share the gospel with him. And so here's this owner, and there's like, even behind him, there's these obscene T-shirts. 
And at the end of our conversation, he pulls out a little green pendant with a golden cross on it and says, I'm a Southern Baptist. Right? I went through the confirmation. I got baptized. They gave me this little green pendant to remind myself that I'm always saved because once saved, always saved. I'm good to go. And what John the Baptist is saying is like, listen, Jews, don't think that because you're born into Israel that you're automatically good to go. Verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In a place like Israel where water is precious, if you have a tree that is sucking water and is not producing fruit, or maybe is producing bad fruit or no fruit, what do you do with that tree? You cut it down, and then you cast it into the fire. John is saying, if you're not bearing the fruit in keeping with repentance, and we'll talk about what that means later on, you will be cut down when the Messiah comes, and you will be consigned to the fire. Does this seem fire and brimstone to you? But you know, this is a message that a presumptuous population needed to hear. Now, I will contend that in America, we are extremely presumptuous about our spiritual destiny. In 2003, there was a poll taken, and 71% of Americans believed in hell, but only 0.5% believed that they would go there when they die. In 2021, do you know how many people believe in hell? It's gone from 71% to 52%. I don't know what the corresponding number is of how many people believe they'll go to hell, but it's very low. You have the overwhelming majority of Americans believe that when they die, either nothing will happen, they'll get reincarnated into a movie star, or they will go to heaven when they die. Hardly anyone believes that they will go to hell. But the data in the Bible suggests otherwise. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate... For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Right? There's a lot of presumptuous people out there, but the fact of the matter is there's fewer people that will come to saving faith and enter that narrow gate and go into heaven. That is a smaller number than those who find the broad path that leads to destruction. The fact that Christianity is not popular is actually an apologetic for the truth of this passage. But you think to yourself, how can you say that I'm a bad person? How, how can you say that? Well, Jesus helps us to understand how you could be a bad person. If we were to play Family Feud and have, give me the number one reason why people say that they are a good person, and you turn around and say, survey says, you know what the number one answer would be? I've never killed anyone. I've never killed anyone. Well, this is what the Bible says. Jesus is speaking here. Matthew 21, 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, 
And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Have you ever been angry? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, you ever called anybody a fool? Or worse? Will be liable to the hell of fire. Right, that's Jesus speaking. You follow that logic. Who deserves the fire? Serious question. If John the Baptist were to come up and call you, you brood of vipers, what would your response be? Some of you would say, how dare you? Who are you to say I'm a son of Satan? Who do you think you are? You're the viper. That would be some of your response. Those who say that, I have little hope for you. But some of you might say, I know it. I know it. I'm deeply ashamed of what I have done. And I know I need some help. You, you, you're right, John. You're right. There is hope for that person, isn't there? But for those people who say, how dare you, and then get defensive and list all the reasons. I mean, I'm involved in ministry. I, I sing songs at church. I've done many wonderful things for you, Lord. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those who reject the authority of God, those who break God's law. Don't believe that some token religious acts mean that you're automatically going to heaven when you die. Don't think that because you are at this church listening to this hard preaching that you are good to go. What is mandatory is repentance, and it begins with turning to righteousness. Look at verse 10. This is our second point. Turn to righteousness. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Right? Right? If you are out there and you're one of the 0.5% of Americans who believes that you're going to go to hell and you come to that realization right now and if you have been able to successfully put aside your defensiveness and with a soft heart say, what can I do about this? There is a lot of hope for you. Seriously. There's a lot of hope for you. God's not going to say too late What's done is done, no forgiveness for you. It's very easy. John says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Now notice he doesn't say, he who has three tunics is to share with those who have one. So you both have two. It's two giving to the one who has none. He's not advocating for socialism here. He is advocating for generosity. Uh, this is really the, the heart of love. 
1 John 3.17, but if anyone has a world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If you see somebody who has a true need, do you have a generous heart for that person? Are you self-giving? Do you repent of your selfishness and out of generosity actively seek to love other people? Secondly, the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Now, to understand this, you need to understand how tax collection worked in that day. What the tax collector would do is they would bid to buy a tax franchise. You know, we are going to tax everybody who's going to cross this access point. And uh, I'll tell you what, Rome, we will give you a thousand denarii for the right to do so. And when you outbid everybody else, you get the tax franchise. All you need to do is make sure that you pay Rome a thousand denarii. But here's where you made the money. You got to keep everything above the thousand denarii. So people come, you get as much out of them as possible. And so you collect 5,000 denarii and you pay Rome 1,000, you keep the rest. Pretty good racket. And John says, no, you don't. You don't exploit other people for your own selfish gain. You pay what you're supposed to. And surely there would be some allowance for keeping some for your own expenses. But this was a decision that Matthew and Zacchaeus both made. They turned away from the corruption and the greed of exploiting other people. Moving on, the soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone who by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. These were probably soldiers, Jewish soldiers, who worked with the tax collectors. Uh, they kind of helped shake people down. Found other things to find them for and to tax them for. And, and what John says is you need to repent of extorting money, exploiting other people, using your position of power to shake other people down and be content with your wages. See, in all of this, there is a, there's a turning from sin, right? Where you turn from shaking people down towards contentment. You turn from selfishness to generosity. And you can keep on going with this, right? You turn from sexual immorality to purity. You, you turn from drunkenness to sobriety. You turn from bitterness to forgiveness. You see, to repent, it, it's to, if you are pursuing sin over here, you don't just pursue the opposite, as we'll see. You pursue Christ on the other side. So as I turn from, let's say, bitterness here, and I pursue Christ, I kind of walk through this portal of forgiveness as I'm pursuing Christ, right? When you pursue Christ, who is patient and loving and forgiving and generous and pure and sober, when you pursue Christ, all of those other manifestations will naturally be embraced. And that is why John goes beyond just saying turning from sin to righteousness. He points him to turn to Christ. Now, some of you might be familiar with the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, it is a program that has served and helped many people. And it borrows a lot of Christian thought. 
thoughts like you need to take responsibility for your own life. You need to make restitution and ask for forgiveness of the people you have wronged. Um, But it falls short in one area. They tell you to embrace a, a higher power of your own choosing. They offer a repentance without Christ. And here's the problem with that. Let's say I go to Alcoholics Anonymous and I say, I'm Dave, I'm an alcoholic, and I've been sober for 10 years. And I have this coin, or I have this mug, or I have some token. It's very easy to be sober for my glory, not God's glory, right? It's easy to be self-righteous about the length of my sobriety. When you turn to Christ, there's no self-righteousness. You turn to Christ because you're not righteous. You need him. You're drawn to him. That is the nature of true repentance. And so John doesn't just leave the audience saying, we just need to be better and we're going to be okay. He points them to Christ. Look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. But naturally, when you have a man who has amassed that kind of following, who is preaching with that kind of conviction, with the heightened expectation of the Messiah, people are going to wonder, you know, I wonder if that's the Messiah. And John anticipates it. He says in verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But the one who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now note, he said that there's one who is coming that is mightier than I. I baptize with water. This guy's going to have a greater baptism. In fact, this guy is so great, I am not worthy to untie his sandal. That was a dirty job, by the way. What he's saying is, I am a flashlight, and he is the S-U-N sun. There is no comparison between the two. I baptize with water, but there is a greater baptism to come. And this is true, right? As we keep on reading Luke, and Luke transitions into Acts, his second volume, we see another account of John the Baptist's disciples. In Acts 19, 1 through 6, I'll go ahead and read it to you. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Right? So apparently, the disciple of John the Baptist spread the word, made its way all the way up to Ephesus. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come, who is to come after him, that is Jesus. Upon hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. It was a turning away from sin to to righteousness. The problem was they did not fully understand 
the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, one that was procured by Jesus dying on the cross and rising again from the dead, one that meant that you would be baptized in the Spirit when Jesus would send down the Holy Spirit at, at Pentecost. I, I've heard it said that to be baptized into the Spirit is to be baptized into the person and power of God. It's an awesome experience. But note, it's not just a baptism of water, right? He's building on that. I mean, that is essential. Jesus does say in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Repentance is part of it. But the greater baptism points to a spirit baptism, but also a baptism of fire. Now, there's some speculation that perhaps Jesus is talking about some will be baptized in the spirit and some will be baptized in the fire in the sense that they are plunged into the lake of fire and condemned forever. Problem with that is that preposition with modifies both spirit and fire. It's the same baptism. It's distinguished by the unquenchable fire later on, by the way. So what kind of baptism is associated with the spirit and fire? Well, again, we go to part two of Luke, the book of Acts, Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. As the Spirit gave them utterance. John's baptism pointed to this spirit baptism of the spirit that baptizes you in the person and power of God and of fire which often represents purification it is a transformational baptism you see when I look back at Alan Chambers remember Alan Chambers the president or former president of Exodus International he backed away from his ministry because he was convinced that it didn't work and I can imagine that as he tried to work with these men and women who struggled with same-sex attraction, as he led Bible studies with them and, and formed friendships with them, and as those people learned how to, to pray and read the Bible and assess and analyze, he would have been convinced that these people are truly brothers in the Lord or sisters in the Lord. And when they went back to the lifestyle from which they came, he would think it didn't work. But they seemed so sincere. How do I reconcile the two? Well, maybe they're saved, they're just not walking with the Lord. Right? A two-stage salvation. There is a diminishment, a necessary diminishment when you believe that, of the power of the Holy Spirit to truly change a life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Those who truly come to Christ through repentance as mandatory, there is a promise that you will have the ability to be transformed. That the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, 
the one who has all the elements and attributes of God can come into your life and he can and he wants to change you. But to activate that, you must repent and yield your life totally over to him. And this is not an optional activity, by the way. Jesus makes it clear in verse 17. Or John makes it clear in 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, this is an agricultural analogy. Back in that day, they would pile up all the grain into kind of a, a circular floor, usually on a hilltop. They'd have maybe a pole, and then they'd have an, an oxen over here, or maybe some people pushing a stick over here, and it'd drag along this, this sled in a circle that had studded stones on the bottom. And the idea was it would break up, it'd break the, the chaff from the kernel, and then they would throw it up in the air so that the chaff would blow away. And when that process would, is done, there would be a cleanup operation. And this is the picture. Here is your Messiah, and he is shoveling the seed, the grain, into his barn. He's keeping it. But as for the chaff, they're being tossed into the, not just fire, what does it say? Unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. You see, there's different views of Jesus. There's the Jesus that's still being crucified on the cross, right? The weak, bleeding Jesus. There's the, the velvet painting Jesus, where he's holding a lamb. Then there's a hippie Jesus, where it's all good, man. It's all good. But then you have this biblical picture of Jesus. Jesus is casting people into hell? I know. You see, in the Bible, there is a theme where salvation is accomplished by judgment. Salvation is accomplished by judgment. You might have seen the movie. A group of POWs from Vietnam are in an enemy prison camp, a sadistic one at that. The United States government sends a one-man army to liberate the prisoners and judge those God-hating communists with a high body count, right? Salvation by judgment. God's people are enslaved in Egypt. God will rescue them, but he will rescue them by judging the Egyptians. The water that parted, that saved them, was the water that closed that judged the Egyptians. You look at the end of Revelation. The Lord will come back and he will save his people with his arrival by judging their enemies. On the cross, God will save his people by judging his son. You see, judgment is God's means of saving his people. And in this case, if you're not part of his people, you will be judged. But for those who do repent, who come to the cross, who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, Jesus will be judged on your behalf so that you can be rescued from the wrath to come. That is the good news. And so we look at Luke 3.18, and so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. It was good news because at the end of this mandatory repentance is a right relationship with the Lord. 
than the promise of eternal life. But to have this eternal life, it is mandatory that you repent. To believe that you can sever Jesus as Savior and Lord is unbiblical with four major problems. Number one, if you decide that you'll accept Jesus as Savior now and Lord later, it presumes that you control the length of your life. This is the prodigal child who will tell his parents, you know, I may come back to Christ at some point in time. I just want to have a little bit of fun first. But don't worry, there's time. What that person doesn't realize is that the only reason they have not been cast into the hell of fire is that the God that they are rebelling against is holding them back. That's presumptuous. Secondly, to accept Christ as to say, I'm going to accept him as Savior now, but Lord later, is to presume that there is more joy in rebellion than in obedience. Right? It presumes that there is more joy in rebellion than obedience. You know, before I surrender my life and, and basically do what the Lord wants me to do, I want to have some fun first. But 1 John 5, 3 says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Loving other people, as the Lord commands, brings joy. Third, to say that you can accept Christ as Lord or Savior now and Lord later presumes that there are minimal consequences for unrepentant sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Telling people peace, peace when there is no peace is not a loving thing. And fourth, to say that you can accept Jesus as Savior now and Lord later because frankly, sanctification doesn't work is to undersell the power of the gospel. Remember, Alan Chambers did not believe that change was possible. And part of it was he practiced kind of a kooky, weird, reparative therapy thing, which is unbiblical. But you know what? 1 Corinthians 6, 11 does say, and such were some of you, right? The homosexuals, the drunkards, revilers. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Could it be that Alan Chambers didn't see fruit in his ministry because he was preaching a gospel with optional repentance? Is there power in that gospel? And so you resort to kooky therapies instead of the true gospel that promises that when you surrender your life to the Lord, you will be baptized into the power and person of God. You will be given the Holy Spirit and you will be purged. You'll become a new person. You won't be perfect, but you will change. You see, offering a gospel without repentance is like offering a new car without a key, right? I got this nice Mercedes for you. Where's the key? Can't help you there, but it's yours. You see, if you want to drive the engine... You need to be able to get in the car and start the car. 
And repentance is where it all begins. Because if the Lord is going to shape you and mold you and change you and rescue you, right? If he's going to do all those things, then you have to be in a posture where he can do so. Where there is no resistance from you because you are completely surrendered. And all of this, for this change to take place, to change your life and to change your test destiny, it is never accomplished by a gospel where repentance is optional. If you want to be changed, it is mandatory that you repent. Let's pray. Well, Father, I am so thankful for this word. And I know that this was more of a, a sober message, but I do pray that your spirit will work in the hearts of some people who are just being presumptuous, who have deceived themselves and been deceived into thinking that they're okay when they're not okay. I pray that this will strike their hearts, stir their souls to seek the true repentance, the one that leads to change, transformation, and eternal life. Lord, we thank you for the clear call that you've given us. We thank you for the hope that we have and that Jesus died on the cross penalty for our sin. And we pray that that singular element will inspire us to change, be transformed, and to put ourselves in a position where you can do all those things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.